We are going over the book of John, the gospel of John. And the reason why we're going through the gospel of John is as follows. The gospel of John packages together the entirety of the message of Jesus, his life, his death, resurrection, and commission of the church, and it packages it all together all while establishing the deity of who Jesus is, realizing that Jesus is part of God. Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the Heavenly Father are all part of God, and this is important to establish. We, As we've been praying through this and wanting to dig into this, we felt it very crucial and very important to ensure that as we teach through the gospel of John, the good news message that comes from John, we wanted to ensure that saints that are old and young alike have a firm and solid foundation in the Bible. Firm and solid foundation in the Bible. And it is crucial to have a firm foundation. A lot of us, we we own one of these things. A lot of us own one of these things. And if you took one this morning, that is our gift to you. Now you have one of these things. These are great. They're great to have, but they can also collect a lot of dust. They can also be used out of turn. They can also be used to justify things that have nothing to do with Jesus himself. So we as the church felt it very crucial and important as we teach and walk through this book to establish a good, solid, strong, and firm foundation in the word and then after that, upon that, we will build from there. If we don't have the necessary prep work done to establish the Bible in our hearts, we may have very beautiful and opulent structures in the sense of our temples, right? Our te- we are supposed to be temples. Our bodies are supposed to be temples for the Lord. We may have very beautiful and opulent structures, but unless very, very uh, concerted, and, and, uh, uh, and focused work is done in advance to prepare the ground, to lay in a good foundation, to establish proper footings, and then build off of those footings. Unless that work is done first, we can have very beautiful structures that may look the part, but when wind and storm and turmoil and challenges come, we will not stand the test of time. We might look really great on the outside and be able to say all the really good things, but unless we have a firm and solid foundation planted in the word of God, we can call ourselves Christians all day long. But when storm and trial and tribulation and difficulty slams against us, we will not have the appropriate underpinnings to last through the challenges that are around us. And that is why we know that there will be many who do fall away, unfortunately. There will be elect that are deceived, unfortunately. We also know that we are living in very interesting times where many challenges and difficulties seem to be pulled from the pages of the book of Revelation over and over again. Every time you open up the news and watch what's on the news, uh, it seems that we are in challenging times, but I want you not to be afraid of that, but rather I want you to be encouraged because when you take the time to establish a firm foundation in the word of God, You don't have to worry about the other pieces. You don't have to worry about the storms or the challenges or the tribulations. They will arise, but they will not affect the foundation that has been laid down when you have a foundation built upon the gospel of truth.
So that's why we want to walk through, start walking through the book of John together. We want to dig into this and we want to establish a foundation. Uh, as some of you know, Maria and I were teaching at the college a few weeks ago. We had a blast. It was really great. We were actually teaching out of the book of John, chapters 14, 15, and 16. We were dealing with the reality that in ministry, no matter what ministry you are in, whether you are a layperson serving in your workplace, whether you are a tradesman uh, putting up boards and erecting structures, whether you are uh, an incredibly intelligent engineer or a scientist or a biologist, whether you're teaching in a school, uh, no matter what, if you are a Christian in any of the settings that are in the world around us, if you are a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel, it's an irrefutable fact, God calls us all to be ministers of the gospel if we believe in Jesus. So if you are a Christ follower, if you believe in Jesus and you are at work in the world around us, it is crucial and paramount that you understand the need for the Holy Spirit to equip and to empower ministry. A lot of times we've seen through history people stand upon their own empowerment and that will only take you so far. Sure, you may make a dent in the world around you and you may have good solid theological standpoints. Perhaps you have letters behind your name that uh, are, you're able to tell people about that give you the qualifications to be uh, a minister of the gospel. But unless you have the Holy Spirit as a part of your life working in you and through you, it is impossible to actually do ministry effectively that has an eternal consequence on the world around you. It's impossible. So, we are teaching through this at the college, and we, you know, these are students that come from all sorts of backgrounds. We appreciate your prayer. It was a very powerful time as we watched the Holy Spirit move powerfully in the lives of student, students and faculty, and it was really crucial to lay down the reality that we can go and do many great things, but unless the Holy Spirit is charging us or empowering us for ministry, truly it is all for naught. So we need to make sure that we have a foundation established in our lives as Christians so that we can ensure we are inviting the Holy Spirit in to correct and to restore and to convict and to minister and to empower. And once that work is done inside, it also begins to flow outside from an abundance of what God is doing. And it's that outpouring from our lives empowered by the Holy Spirit that actually affects a world around us and changes hearts, lives, and eternities. And so church, I want to, as we dig into this series together, I want you to keep that in mind. And I want you to begin asking yourself a very important question, a question that is hard for us to grapple with sometimes when church has become our tradition. A question that is hard for us to grapple with sometimes when church has become our tradition or the badge that we wear, the question is, do we really know Jesus? Do we really know Jesus? Furthermore, have our lives been truly affected by Jesus? I was confronted with a hard reality a little while ago as I was processing this book and I'm looking through this and reading some of the damning scriptures that come forward from the mouth of Jesus himself. And it caused me to pause and reflect not only on my own life, but also on the state of the broader church. 
You see, often we bear the name Jesus. I, I am a Christian. I follow Christ. I believe in Jesus. We profess these things with our mouths, but our personal lives betray the testimony of the work of the cross. Our personal lives betray the testimony of the work upon the cross. You see, if we have the audacity to declare that we desire to follow Jesus and we know Jesus and we met Jesus, how can we possibly remain the same as we used to be? How can there not be some type of transfiguration? How can there not be some type of amazing transformation that sees our lives changed and transformed from who we were to who we are now as followers of Jesus? These are hard things to wrestle with because when we talk about these things in a church setting, it can upset the apple cart a little bit. We don't want to look at the reality that maybe our established traditions and structures that we have adhered to so well and so fervently, they may actually be far from Christ. But perhaps they aren't far from Christ, yet only a degree off. But at the end of the race, a degree off puts us miles from the goal. So we have to look at this, and, and there's no shame at looking at this. There actually isn't. There is no shame at taking a good, solid, and sober look at the state of our personal circumstances when it comes to us knowing Jesus. And the way that we do that, the litmus test, the way that we're able to assess and have a peek at this and know where we're at as, a, as far as following in the footsteps of Jesus is simply and plainly reading the Bible. Because the Bible sets a precedent for us of what it looks like to walk in and live a godly, honoring, uplifting life that is righteous before God and before man. Now, will we all get it right on this side of the grave? No, we won't. We can't get it right on this side of the grave. It's impossible. In fact, there are no amount of works that we can perform on our own that will put us in better standing with God. There is no type of speech, no clothes I can wear, no thoughts that I can think, no path I can walk that when I do it of my own strength will bring me closer to God. There is one way and only one way to be closer to God, to know him. The only one way is to choose to follow Jesus. It's true. Now, that's not necessarily popular nowadays. I'm not here to teach about popularity. I'm here to teach about what does the Bible say. The Bible says we need to follow Jesus, and in him we have life. The book of John also packages together a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful verse that encompasses the entirety of the scripture. It's John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Some of these things may seem confounding to you at the moment as you're struggling to understand what, what does this mean? But I want to encourage you that as we walk through the book of John together, as we endeavor to read the scriptures and dig into them and have the Holy Spirit reveal to us the mysteries of the gospel, I encourage you that these things will actually become uh, paramount portions of your life as you lean into them in your understanding of who Jesus is, what the Bible is about, and God's plan for you and for me. 
So we want to go through this, and, and we felt that it's crucial to establish a good foundation. We also felt that it's crucial to deal with a challenging question. I just mentioned it earlier. Am I following Jesus? Do I appropriately and healthily bear the name of Christian? Has there been a change in my life or do I just declare that a change has happened without a change actually occurring? A funny illustration occurred to me is, you know, you've got an apple tree saying that it's an apple tree all day long, declaring to everybody around it, I am an apple tree. Look at the apples I'm producing. They are the reddest, shiniest, sweetest tasting apples. They have a beautiful fragrant aroma that attracts people from all over. These are the most glorious apples that I am producing from my apple tree. But really, it's producing oranges. And it seems audacious to say something like that. Well, that's so goofy. That's so silly. But we can also apply that same analogy to our walk as a Christian. I'm 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 a Christian. Praise Jesus. I'm a Christian. But are we bearing the fruit that proves out we are following Christ? And the bearing of that fruit does not come from our strengths and our efforts. The bearing of that fruit comes from being connected to the proper vine, connected to the proper source. And so we want to tackle some of these things. What fruit am I bearing? And we will see this as we walk through John. What is coming from my life? Do I have the bravery to stop for a moment and look at what is coming from my life? Am I walking in accordance with God's will and God's way out of a transformation from the Holy Spirit? Or have I been working really hard for 10, 15, 20, 50 years to appear a certain way, but my heart is desperately from God? Hard questions, I know. But at the end of the day, at the end of my life, when I have to stand before God and God gives an account to me of what my life looked like, I'm not particularly interested in making sure that God says, you did a good job at making your church feel really comfortable. What I am more concerned about is, did I do a job, a good job, of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry? And sometimes in doing so, we have to look at the reality of what structures we have built and developed that build this beautiful and opulent palace that is supposed to be our Christian lives. We have to look at it, we have to, peer, we have to peel back the layers and take a peek, is the foundation good? Is the foundation good? We bought a house a while ago, a couple of years ago, and, and we sort of bought it on a whim um, because we, we weren't exactly sure what was going to be the deal with it. We got it for very, very cheap because we heard that there were problems with it. Now from the outside, it looked like a beautiful house. Wonderful home. It looked like you could just put people in there and have them live in there all day long and it could be a great and usable space. It had a suite in it. It was on a nice lot, beautiful view. From the outside, it looked fantastic. But the preparation was never done when it was originally built to make sure the ground was consolidated and compacted properly. And when the foundation was laid down on top of the ground, which did not receive the proper preparation, it held for a while, and it looked good for a long time, and from the outside, it was hard to even imagine that there could be an issue. The house was built, 
The walls went up. <clears throat> it was finished. And it looked fantastic. But ultimately, it was condemned. Strong word, condemned. Even though it looked great, it was condemned. And it was condemned because when the storm hit, truly, a storm came, and it washed down and around and through this house. It disturbed the areas that actually should have been properly compacted. It disturbed the areas that should have been a part of the strong and good foundation. And in fact, it disturbed the underpinnings of a structure that was intended to bring life. And when the storm came and washed away and, and ruined the underpinnings, all because of a lack of healthy preparation, proper preparation, this place that was supposed to be a place where people could live and laugh and love, it was a place then that became condemned. From the outside, it looked wonderful. But at the core of it, there was a problem. The work that had to be done to repair that was extensive. Everything had to come out. The walls had to be stripped down. We had to peer into all the covered up and dark places. And in doing so, we realized that there were cracks, there were problems, there were challenges. But what's amazing, and I love, this is why I love houses and I love working on houses. What was so amazing about this project is that no matter how bad something seems, no matter what the diagnosis is saying that yes, the condemnation is forever, When we allow those dark places to be looked into, to be opened up, to be peered into, to be assessed and to look, be looked at for what they are, there's nothing that cannot be repaired. Sure, it takes a little bit of effort. Sure, it takes a little bit of money. Sure, it takes some busted knuckles and, and sore heads when you bang them on stuff. And, and sure, you have to bring in some experts. And sure, you have to bring in others to, to look at and assess with you. But what's amazing is that at the end of the day, when the effort is put in to repair and restore the foundational issues that we might have, that very place that was under an order of condemnation that could no longer be used for what it was intended to be used for, that order of condemnation is lifted, and then life and joy and laughter and happiness can reside in that space again. That is your life. That is my life. We are going through the Gospel of John to establish or perhaps reestablish a proper and solid foundation so that when the storms might rise up and the challenges may come, we can make sure that we're going to be okay. So the Gospel of John, a few points for you guys to remember. So the Gospel of John was written to persuade people to believe in Jesus. It was written to persuade people to believe in Jesus Christ. At the time, there was challenges arising. Who is Jesus? What's he about? Is he really the Messiah? It was written to persuade people to understand that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. The opening verses declare that Jesus is God, stressing his unique relationship with God the Father and establishing the foundational evidence of his deity 
It's crucial. It's all in the beginning of the book of John. We're going to go through that shortly. The, um, the book also focuses on seven of Jesus' signs or miracles that also establish the fact that he is doing supernatural works, not natural works. Any of us can do really good natural works. I mean, we're all good at something. Even if you think you're good at nothing, you're probably really good at something. Maybe you're good at picking your belly button. God bless you. You're really good at something. We all have natural abilities, but the point that we see here is the book of John, through the recounting of Christ's miracles, establishes that supernatural things came out of the life of Jesus, showing that there is a connection point between him and the mystery of God. This is a beautiful thing. Jesus called people to believe in him, and in believing him, Jesus had the audacity to proclaim that if you believe in him, you will receive eternal life. Again, if these are struggling points, challenges for you, we'll get through those. Don't worry. He proved that he could give life by raising Lazarus from the dead, as well as rising again from his own death, as Kristen talked about this last week. So Jesus confronts death but he also shows that he is the defeater of death. Again, showing and proving out that he is more than just a natural man. The book of John features Christ's seven I am statements. So I am, and we're gonna get through those, I am. It talks about his encounters with Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman. We'll talk about those in the future. It talks about the teachings in the upper room and the washing of the disciples' feet, as well as his high priestly prayer that we see towards the end of the book. It includes the most well-known summary of the gospel, which is John 3.16. The whole of the gospel is packaged together in a sentence, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you're on the fence about that and you don't know about that yet, we will get there. The author of the book of John was the Apostle John, not John the Baptist, although John the Baptist is talked about in the book of John. The author is the Apostle John, and it was written around 85 AD, okay? 85 AD, important to know. The Apostle John and John the Baptizer were two different people, like I just said. John the Baptizer, if you're wondering, was actually beheaded shortly after Uh, Jesus started his ministry. Sounds a little rough, but welcome to the reality of preaching in challenging places. So who was John the Apostle? Uh, John was known as one of Jesus' closest friends. So the account that we see that John takes us through of who Jesus is, is coming from a place of a very deep and profound relationship that Jesus and John had together. They loved each other very, very deeply. John also authored the most books out of all of the disciples. So we see the book of John, we see John 1, 2, and 3 later on, as well as we also see the book of Revelation. If you want to go through the book of Revelation at some point, let me know. I would love to go through it with you. It is not a scary book, as some of us might have been led to believe. And the other cool bonus feature about the book of Revelation is 
It is the only book in the Bible that promises you will receive a special blessing for reading it. The only book in the whole Bible. So if you're to pick one book from the entire Bible, 66 books, if you're gonna pick one to read, read the book of Revelation because you are promised a special blessing for reading that book, the only one. So that's a little foreshadowing. We will get to the book of Revelation at some point, but I wanna create an appetite for you about it. It's not scary even though there are monsters and dragons. Mm. Oh yes, it's like Lord of the Rings stuff, before Lord of the Rings. It's pretty amazing. We'll get there, we'll get there. Um, So here we go. Uh, John was also the brother of James, one of the other apostles of Jesus, and they were actually known as the sons of thunder. James and John were known as the sons of thunder, likely because of their very fiery uh, tempers. True, they were actually nicknamed the Sons of Thunder because of their very fiery tempers, uh, and it was very clear that they were the first Irish apostles. Yes, I know, always good for a laugh. So we have seven miracles that Jesus displayed in the book of John. Uh, And those, I think they're in the notes, they might be able to put them up on screen. Again, just for an overview, we will walk through these things in their entirety as we go on. But the first miracle, uh, who says Jesus isn't fun, he turned water into wine at a wedding party. Good stuff, we will get there. Uh, And if you are upset that we talk about wine at church, talk to me after the service. It's in the Bible, so get upset at God. It's not my fault, I'm sorry. Uh, So water into wine, he healed the official son. Number three is there was healing at the pool of Bethsaida. Number four is there is the feeding of the 5,000. Number five, walking on water. Number six, healing of the man who was born blind. And number seven, raising Lazarus from the dead. As Kristen talked about last week, we will unpack these things in their entirety. Number, uh, sorry, there's also the seven I am statements that Jesus made about himself. He had the audacity to say that he is a certain thing. And every piece that Jesus talks about in his I am statements, again, establishes the need that we have for Jesus tremendously. I am, number one, I am the bread of life. Number two, I am the light of the world. Number three, I am the door or the gate. Number four, I am the good shepherd. Number five, I am the resurrection and the life. Number six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And finally, number seven is I am the vine. What are we connected into when it comes to our lives? What fruit is coming from our lives? These are questions we want to ask. This is not a place to be afraid of these questions, but rather to embrace these things because when we are believers in Jesus, we say yes to the process of refinement. We say yes to the reality that the Holy Spirit is going to deal with things in our lives. And in that, there is some pressure. In that, there is some heat. But those aren't bad things. The stuff that's garbage, that's not supposed to be there, eventually starts coming to the surface. And God drosses those things off. He skims them off so that we are left on the other side of the process. We are left more pure. And this is a good thing. But what it also means is that we, when we say we're gonna follow Jesus, we actually see that we are okay with the process of divorcing ourselves from who we used to be. Dying to who we used to be for the sake of saying yes to Jesus. Is it uncomfortable? To our flesh it is. It's terribly uncomfortable. 
But again, when we say yes to Jesus, we say yes to accepting a transformed life. Jesus isn't an accessory add-on. We all know about accessory add-ons. You get them when you buy a car. You get them when you shop on Amazon. We find all these little trinkets and accessories to try to better our lives. Jesus is not an accessory add-on that we attach to our lives, something cheap that's just gonna break in a few weeks. Jesus is not an accessory add-on. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus, when we say yes to him, Jesus begins a transformative work in our lives and we are no longer okay with who we used to be. And if you've been here for a long time or you've been a Christian for a long time, you are not exempt from the process. Not one person here is. And in fact, I'll be frank, it is almost exciting and fun to watch new people come to faith when they grasp this and they say, I want to follow Jesus, and their lives are suddenly different and changed and transformed by the lasting work of Christ. It's so beautiful to watch this, but then you also see Christians who have been Christians for a long time frustrated with that. Well, the reality is we want to celebrate the joy that comes from the transformed life by the work of Christ upon the cross. We wanna celebrate that, but we also wanna have an expectation for that in our lives, in the life of the church, and in the life of the community. So, if you wanna turn with me, now that we've got all the basics out of the way for what we're gonna see in the book of John and why we are going to go through the book of John, we want to dig into the book together and we are going to start reading from John chapter one this morning. If you have a Bible, turn to it. If you want to read along with the same translation I'm using so that you're not confused, you can go ahead and watch on the screen. I am reading from the English Standard Version. That is the version that I prefer to read from. If you don't have that, that's okay. If you're new to reading a Bible, don't be afraid. You might crack it open and attempt to follow along with me and it might be a little bit different than what I'm reading. As a whole, it's not different but the way that it has been translated may appear different to you or it might follow in a bit of a different order for sentence structure, and that's okay, don't worry. That is totally fine. We can dig into the realities of that stuff at a different date. For starters, I just want to encourage you, be comfortable with opening up your Bibles and reading the Word of God. You won't die. A lightning bolt won't strike you from heaven. You won't get bored, trust me. It's called the living word for a reason. There is life in that word and you will receive life as you begin reading that word. But this morning, if you want to follow along with exactly the wording that I am using, you can read on the screen. If you want to endeavor to follow along in your translations, I encourage you to do the same. But if you have a Bible with you, I encourage you to jot notes down. If there are things that I'm reading that stick out to you, don't be afraid to grab a pen and write in there, circle stuff, make notes. My Bible's covered in notes, this is good. It shows that you are contemplating what's going on in there. So we're gonna read this morning, and I love this. John chapter one. In the beginning. In the beginning. Where have you heard that before? Genesis, that's right. The very beginning of Genesis establishes in the beginning God. 
In the beginning, God created. And we see here, John echoes this in the beginning of his book. In the beginning was the Word, capitalized. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. If you're new to this, that's code for Jesus, okay? The Word was God. He, or sorry, the Word, yeah, the Word was God. So it's establishing that Jesus and God are connected together. He, Jesus, was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him, not anything made was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John, and I love this. There's a specific word that's used here that I love. There was a man sent from God. It's talking about John the Baptist, sent from God. Well, John has a mom named Elizabeth and a dad named Zechariah, and Elizabeth was barren. She was not able to have children. And in fact, she went 88 years of life before she had a child. Imagine being 88 years old and having your first baby. Who here is 88? or so and would just love to have their first baby. No one, no hands go up, praise the Lord. 88 years old, Elizabeth wanted a child. She was never able to have a child. Yet when her and Zechariah came together, there was a beautiful promise from God that was fulfilled in Elizabeth's life and she became pregnant, an impossibility. Even an impossibility today with all of science and technology that we have, Elizabeth became pregnant and the baby in her womb was filled with the spirit of God and left with joy and that was John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a forerunner for Jesus, meaning that he was like a harbinger. He came before Jesus to declare that Jesus was coming. He was preparing the way for Jesus to come into the world so that people would be ready to hear about him. And I love this word here there was a man sent from God. Not a man sent by God. Like if I send one of my kids to go and do something, they were sent by me. But John came about by way of a miracle from God for this purpose. He was sent from God. And his name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And the word became flesh. Jesus became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he comes after me, ranks before me because he was before me. For from 
his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, the law was given through man. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now we're stepping into the testimony of John the Baptist. And this is his testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? See, all the pastors and the teachers at the time wanted to go and find out what was this guy all about, this this John guy, what was he up to? What was he doing? Who are you, they said. Well, he confessed and, and did not deny, but he confessed, I am not the Christ. And they said and asked him, well, what then? Are you Elijah? He said, no, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. So they said to him, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And I love this because John has opportunity to take glory for himself, yet he refuses to, and he points to somebody else. He says, I am the voice of the one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees, and they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And John answered them, I only baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie, these things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. Well, the next day, he saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Think about how crazy this guy must have sounded. This is John the baptizer, by the way. He was dressed in a whole bunch of hairy camel clothes. He was eating locusts and honey. And for all of you who are like, well, locusts, that was like a word for bread. No, he was literally eating dried grasshoppers, dipping them in honey, tossing them in his mouth, covered from head to toe in gross, gnarly beard, wearing camel clothes, coming out of the bushes, stumbling towards the crowd, and making a declaration before everybody, hold up, wait, this is the guy that we've all been waiting for. Pause for a second. How many of us would be like, man, he's nuts. Cancel him immediately. We are not interested in anything this guy has to say. I can't tell you how many times I get good, well-meaning Christians that pull me aside that say, you know, the pastors need to dress better. The pastors have to look nicer. The pastors have to clean themselves up a little bit more. John the baptizer, dressed in disgusting, hairy camel clothes, munching on dead grasshoppers and honey with an unkept beard and wily hair, ripping through the wilderness and stepping out into the, next, to the river, riverbed, he makes this declaration to the world around him saying, this is Jesus. How many good, well-meaning, wonderful church folks would say, ah, he isn't dressed so nice, so I don't really know if I want get to into, get into that. Uh, he doesn't look the way that I thought he should look, so I'm not really interested in paying attention. Mm, you know what, he didn't get the, you know, the, the best clothes from the store down the street, and, and I know he hasn't been to the barber in a while, so it really discounts what he has to say. Think about that. And think about your own hearts and how you're affected by what I just said.
The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. He says, I saw the spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Something is established here. John is making known the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God and he is here to take the sins of the world. Church, pay attention to this because often, we hear declarations about who Jesus is and what Jesus is doing, but we write it off because we just can't even fathom the sources that it might come from. Jesus, here he is in the flesh, present before them, and even while Jesus is standing in front of them, many still chose not to believe. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, behold, the Lamb of God. I mean, this guy's like a broken record. He's saying it again. It's almost as though that's all he knows how to say. Behold, the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you'll see. So they came and they saw where he was staying and they actually stayed with him on that day for it was about the 10th hour. It was getting late. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John you shall be called Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and he said to him, follow me. Think about this. Jesus just shows up on the scene and he's going around as people are understanding the gravity of who he is and he's saying, follow me. And people are laying it all down and saying, yeah, I'm, I'm in. I will follow you. So the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter, and Philip found Nathanael. So everybody's going and telling everybody. It's like a fun game of telephone, right? Like something crazy happened to me. I'm gonna go tell my friend, hey, 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 Bobby, come over here. I got something to show you. And then Bobby's like, whoa, this is amazing. And then Bobby goes and tells his friend, Brian, and he's like, Brian, you won't believe this. I, I met somebody, you gotta come and meet him. And so Brian comes along. And so it's this kind of a, a fun thing that's happening and momentum is building. So Philip, he goes and finds Nathanael and he said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets wrote about. We found Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And then Nathanael, he, he's just, he's a bit of a twit. He goes, 
He goes, can, any, can, anything good come from, can anything good from come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? And you'd be offended by that, right? They're like, well, Nazareth is my hometown. Can anything good from, come from Castlegar? Yes, actually. Robson, well. Ah, come on. I know, I know. We love Robson. <clears throat> can, and, and so, so Nathaniel says this. Can anything good come from Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. And Jesus, who by the way, had no prior, uh, no prior natural understanding of who Nathaniel is. He has a supernatural understanding of who Nathaniel is. Nathaniel rolls up and he comes towards Jesus and Jesus goes, behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is Jesus' way of being sarcastic, by the way. And the Bible is full of good examples of Christ's glorious sarcasm to make points. Nathaniel is here spouting off, well, what good can possibly come from Nazareth? And Nathaniel, he's a very good Israelite, approaching Jesus in all of his fine linens, covered in all of his glorious temple-worthy garb, and Jesus goes, oh, look, oh, an Israelite. Hmm, can't be any deceit in this man. He's making a point. So Nathaniel says to him, how do you know me? So he's a little stumped. Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, you were under that fig tree, I saw you. And Nathaniel answers him, Rabbi. He was very firmly and swiftly corrected. Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree, you believe me? Trust me, you're gonna see some greater things. Hold on to your socks, Nathan. It's gonna get wild, just you wait. Truly, truly I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. That is our introduction into the book of John. Worship team, come up here. We'll close out with one last song. That is our introduction into the book of John. And as we go through, we will continue to unpack the scriptures. We will continue to unpack this book so that you are able to have strong foundations and prep work done. Through this process, I want you to accept that a strong foundation in the faith will be established in your lives. But I also want you to expect that as you dig into the word of God and you draw closer to Jesus and say, Jesus, search me and know me, I want you to expect that in this process, some things might happen. You might have some challenging times erupt. Not necessarily out there in the world that you live in, but eternally. The Holy Spirit might start doing some work in your life. You might actually start feeling conviction about things. And what's amazing is that's not gonna come from me or Pastor Maria or Pastor Ben or Pastor Kristen. That's not coming from people. As you read the word of God, as you draw closer to Jesus, the Holy Spirit does an amazing thing and he actually starts bringing conviction. And it's not bad because the conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit is there to convict of sin. It's the three-letter word we never like to talk about in church. We talk about sex more than we talk about sin sometimes. The Holy Spirit brings conviction of sin. That means internally we might sometimes feel bad about things that we have done. And that's not a bad thing. You see, if you live in that, that's called living in guilt and living in shame. And that does not come from God. 
but the conviction of the Holy Spirit is there to bring that stuff to the surface so you can see what it is. And you're brought to a place to say, God, I am sorry that I've sinned against you. And what's amazing in this process, as we repent, that means apologizing, as we repent to God, it actually starts this process of seeing our pride diminished and Christ rise up. Our pride is diminished when the Holy Spirit brings conviction. The only thing that gets hurt is our pride. And we have to wrestle with that. And we need to be okay with saying, okay, God, I get it. I've sinned against you. How do I fix this? Well, the best part is, is you can't. The best part is, is Jesus did. The best part is, is you need to simply say, God, I am so sorry that I've sinned against you. Thank you for showing me. Thank you for opening up my eyes to see Thank you for touching my heart and caring about me so much that you don't want separation from me to you. Thank you for helping me realize that I have stepped outside of your perfect plan for me. Lord, please just forgive me. And what's great is he forgives you freely. And he wipes it away from you so that who you used to be no longer defines who you are now. And there is life freely and lightly in the name of Jesus when the Holy Spirit brings that conviction and that correction. And you see, if we live in that, there is guilt and shame and condemnation, but there is none of those things in Jesus' name. That comes from Satan who wants you to live in captivity. What comes from Jesus is freedom. Chains broken, prison doors open, lives set free. That comes from Jesus. I want you to think about these things and expect this during the next while as we go through the scripture. You will experience these things. You will experience challenge by way of realizing, man, maybe I've really messed up. But remember that Pastor James is telling you this now, don't live in that condemnation. Recognize it. Go to Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for showing me. I am sorry. Forgive me. And then walk out in the freedom that comes from the work of Christ on that cross. Jesus, be with your church this morning. Holy Spirit, I just ask that you begin ministering in people's lives and hearts today as we go through this series, as they start reading the word of God, as we, as we dig together into what your Bible says, Lord, bring conviction. Bring understanding. Bring us to a place of repentance before you so that we can walk righteously. Establish your true and firm foundation in our lives so that when we are anchored to you, we will not be moved and we will not be shaken when the storms come. We love you and we praise you this morning. In your holy name we pray, amen, amen.